All right. Well, it is. Uh, uh, we're continuing our study of Israel in these last few Sundays before the end of the year, with all that's going on in the world with Israel. So I'm going to be talking today about why everyone is a dispensationalist, whether they realize it or not. Uh, four brothers left home uh, for college, and they became very, very successful, very wealthy doctors and lawyers and wealthy businessmen and some years later they were chatting after having dinner and they discussed the Christmas gifts that they were going to give to their elderly mother who lived far away in another city and the first brother said well I'm having this great big house built for mama and the second son said well I'll uh, I'll put in a hundred thousand dollar theater home theater in that house and the third said well I'm going to have my Mercedes dealer deliver a brand new car to mama well, the fourth uh, brother uh, kind of put some more thought into it and was a little more contemplative, and, and he said, you know, you guys know how much Mama loves reading the Bible, and, and you know she really can't read much anymore because she can't see very well. And uh, so I met this preacher who told me about a parrot that can recite the entire Bible. It took 20 Bible scholars and ornithologists working together nonstop for three months to teach him and I had to pledge to contribute half a million dollars to the project, but it was worth it. All Mama has to do is just name the chapter and verse, and the parrot will recite that scripture. Well, needless to say, the other brothers were quite impressed. And so after the holidays, Mom sent out her thank you notes to the four boys. And here's what she said. To the first, she wrote, Dear Milton, the house you built me is, is so huge and I really appreciate it, but you know, I really live only in one room, and now I've got to clean the whole house, but <laughs> thanks anyway. To Michael, she said, Dearest Michael, you gave me an expensive theater with Dolby surround sound. It can hold 50 people, but you know, honestly, all my friends are dead, and I've lost my hearing, and I'm nearly blind. I never really use it, but thanks for the gesture just the same. To the third, she said, Dearest Marvin, I'm really too old to travel. I stay home all day, every day. In fact, I have my groceries delivered, so I never use that Mercedes, but the thought was good. Thank you. And finally, to the fourth, she said, Dearest Melvin, you are the only son to have the good sense to really put some thought into your gift, and I really appreciate it. She said, I have to say, that fresh turkey was delicious. So, <laughs> dispensations. I thought I would put this in perspective by, uh, by mentioning a few notable dispensationalists before we get into defining what is that, that crazy term. And so maybe this will help you appreciate the value of dispensationalism. These are a few notable famous dispensationalists through the years. Uh, Paul, I'm sure you appreciate those uh, dispensationalists on the screen, do you not? No, seriously, uh, these are some names that you may have come across as you study the Word of God, read commentaries, read Christian living books and theology books that you might have on your shelf. All of these great teachers of the faith are in the dispensational camp. Folks like Darby, Schofield, Gabeline, Clarence Larkin. Lewis Berry Chafer founded Dallas Theological Seminary in the 1920s. Harry Ironside, Alva J. McLean founded Grace Seminary in Winona Lake. G. Campbell Morgan, great man of God. John Walvert. Charles Ryrie, J. Dwight Pentecost. These are men that I had as professors along with Stanley Toussaint, uh, Bob Leitner, uh, when I was studying uh, over the last 30 years in uh, school. Uh, all of these men are with the Lord now. Rennie Showers, uh, 
The last three that you see on the list there, Mike Stallard, they're all still living. Mike Stallard is still my mentor uh, uh, to this day, a great man of God leading, one of, I think, one of the most uh, insightful theologians of our day. Dr. Thomas Ice, you may have heard him on the Not By Works podcast several times, and I'll be with him in December at the pre-trib study group uh, conference. And then Dr. Randall Price, he's been on our program as well, a great man of God. There are many others. You might have some that would be on your list of favorite dispensational teachers, men like Andy Woods, a dear friend of mine, Mondo Gonzalez from Prophecy Watchers, Arnie Fruchtenbaum. Uh, there are others. But uh, as we think about this question, are you a dispensationalist? I've got three questions that I want you to contemplate to really drive home uh, the point that I'm going to be making as we define this term biblically and theologically. Number one, how many of you showed up for church yesterday? Show of hands on the Sabbath. Anybody? Guess what? You're a dispensationalist whether you knew it or not. Uh, secondly, uh, those of you that are here today, uh, how many of you brought a goat with you to church? Anybody? I'm sure Paul appreciates that, less to clean up. And by the way, we don't recommend bringing a goat. Not necessary. Uh, what about this one? How many of you have a garden? Anybody have a garden or a greenhouse? Good. That's a good idea especially with what's coming down the pipe. But let me ask you this. Do you wear clothes when you tend your garden? Adam and Eve didn't. They tended their garden in the, in the buff. I'm just saying. See, that's what we mean by dispensationalism, is that throughout human history, God has interacted with people on planet Earth differently. doesn't mean there's different ways of salvation. Every man from Adam forward is saved the same way by faith. Paul makes that clear in Romans 5. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, saved by faith, declared righteous before a holy God by faith. Only one way anybody can be made right with a holy God, and that's by trusting in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. If you've not done that, then you are still estranged from a holy God, and you need to receive the free gift of salvation paid for by the blood of Christ. And the only way to receive it is by faith. That's the mechanism for receiving salvation. Uh, but Having been saved, it should be self-evident, and we're going to explain this more from a theological perspective as we go through this morning, that God over the ages has interacted with His people differently. Different rules of engagement, you might say. Not different ways of salvation, but different economies, so to speak. So what is dispensationalism? What is a dispensation? And for the answer to that, I want us to camp out in the book of Ephesians this morning, uh, Ephesians is Paul's seventh letter. He wrote it during his uh, Roman imprisonment from 60 to 62 A.D. He wrote four letters there. This was the first of the four. Uh, and so really he wrote this fall of 60 A.D. would be the rough time frame. And Paul had visited the famous city of Ephesus twice prior, at least that we know of in Scripture. On his second missionary journey in, the, in September of 52 A.D., he spent a short time there. But then if you recall from our study through the book of Acts that we did uh, not too long ago, uh, on his third missionary journey, Paul spent almost three years camped out in Ephesus. And uh, it was from Ephesus. He was there, by the way, September of 53 to May of 56, so almost three years. And while he was in Ephesus, he wrote uh, the book of 1 Corinthians uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during that time there. But a lot of interesting things took place at Ephesus. Um, he, uh, it was a, a lot of spiritual warfare, which is why, interestingly enough, when we read his letter back to that city, to the believers in that city, we see so much information about spiritual warfare and principalities and powers and that thing, that kind of thing. But while he was at Ephesus, remember, he had the interaction with the seven sons of Sceva, who thought they were all that and were going to come up against these demon-possessed, this demon-possessed man. And 
boy, it just ate them for lunch. Remember, the demon said, you know, Paul, I know, and Jesus, but who are you? <laughs> and then he just destroyed them, embarrassed them. Uh, very powerful spiritual warfare taking place. Fear after that came upon the whole region. Remember, all the magicians started burning their books, uh, their pagan books. Uh, there was a big riot in Ephesus that ultimately led Paul to flee uh, over the uh, silversmith, the, the shrines to uh, the Roman goddess uh, Diana, and Paul is speaking against uh, those pagan beliefs. So let's pick it up in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 7. In him, that's Christ, obviously, as you can tell from the capital H, we have redemption through his blood. Redeemed just means bought with a price. There was a price for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Paul told I mean, God told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of the fruit, you'll die. That's the penalty. Uh, but because of Christ and through his shed blood, we can be redeemed. That penalty has been paid. The purchase price has been paid. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. That phrase, in him, is a critical phrase in Paul's writings. It's unique to this present dispensation, as we're going to see. Uh, we don't see that phrase in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints were not in Christ. The Bible never says that, never talks about that. But one of the special blessings of this present age, one of the special aspects of this present stewardship or economy, is the fact that we are positionally placed in Christ. We have a more intimate relationship with God's eternal Son than any other believer in any age prior. When he says, According to the riches of His grace. We talked about grace last week, didn't we? And, and God's amazing grace through the ages. And what, we, what He's saying here is that God's plan of the ages is a gracious plan. And that grace is manifested in the present age more powerfully than ever before. Uh, it's not that grace came into existence today. Grace has always been around. God is eternal. God eternally exists in three persons. God's attributes are eternal. He's no more gracious today than he was uh, in the Old Testament. He's been the same God for 6,000 years of human history. But what we see in this present dispensation is a new, powerful, high-definition manifestation of that grace. There's no greater picture of grace than the atoning work of God's eternal Son on the cross. Uh, Jesus said, no greater love has anyone than this than to lay down his life for his friends, right? And so we, uh, we see grace manifested in unique, powerful ways in this uh, present age. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will. We're going to come back to that word mystery in a moment. But notice, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times... There's that word dispensation. It's a biblical word. comes straight out of Scripture. I'm reading from the New King James here. Uh, some translations might say stewardship or order or plan. But notice, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. There's that phrase again. Both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So what is this word dispensation? It's the word oikonomia in Greek. Remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. The original word was Oikonomia. It's used seven or eight times in the Greek New Testament, most of them by Paul, and it just means stewardship, order, plan, or program. In other words, God has a plan. God is not a reactive God. God is not up there 
watching, fingers crossed, wondering what's going to happen next, and then deciding on the moment, what should I do next? That's not our God. Our God is sovereign. He exists outside of time, space, and matter. In fact, he, he created time, space, and matter. That's what Genesis 1-1 tells us. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, matter, uh, space, and the earth, matter. So God spoke the world into existence. He created time. There will come a time when time shall be no more. At the end of the age, when we move into the eternal state, and this old world bound by sin is destroyed, and God recreates it in sinless perfection. But in God's eternal plan of the ages, He has a, a deliberate, intentional plan that's in the mind of God, and He's rolling it out over time. Uh, nothing surprises God. There's no plan B's with God. It's all part of uh, His plan. Now, what we have in the Word of God is the unveiling of that plan, His communication of that plan to us. So this is what we call the progress of revelation. It started in uh, 1446 B.C. during the wilderness wanderings when God first uh, prompted through the Holy Spirit Moses to begin writing the Bible in written form. Uh, and for the next 1,500 years, God unveiled his plan through the pen of the human authors, 40 different human authors, by the way, in three different languages, again, over a period of 1,500 years, culminating in the book of Revelation in Greek at the end of the first century, 95-96 AD. And in this plan that God reveals to us, he explains uh, these different dispensations, different interactions that God has uh, with mankind. But let's look at the plan as a whole, first of all, as, as we just read, uh, God has a plan according to the pleasure, his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. We just sang about what a good God he is. If God's a good God, his purpose is always good. He only wants what's best for his people. That's why he rescued us from our own predicament. God didn't cause us to sin. In fact, he warned us against it. Watch out for that one tree. It's dangerous. And what did we do? We went over and took a great big bite. And then God, in his incredible goodness and mercy, he set out to rescue us from our own predicament. But God has a plan, and if we look at God's plan, we could call this circle God's plan for the universe. And let's look at the big picture. First of all, it starts with creation. And again, God unveils this in His Word. Uh, the, the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created. So it's the creation of the world. And then as you move along in time, God explains the creation of the nations after the flood and after the Tower of Babel. And then as we looked at last week, God created the nation of Israel when he gave that unconditional promise to Israel. And eventually, as we're going to be talking about this morning, he created the church, this new body of believers, Jew and Gentile in one. So this is the creative aspect of God's plan. But as I mentioned, mankind fell. So even though God created man in his image, uncorrupted, the image of God and man became corrupted when we of our own free will chose to sin. So God then it couldn't stop here because this creation is imperfect. It needs to be redeemed. And so there's a redemptive side of God's plan. And it kind of works in inverse order. Coming back down, we see first the rapture of the church being rescued at the, uh, at the rapture. Then the restoration of Israel into the land, as we talked a lot about last week, the title deed to the land belongs to Israel, and they will be regathered into the land when Christ comes back. And then we see the retribution of the nations who reject the free gift of salvation. God will pour out his wrath upon them. And finally, the redemption of all creation, when God makes all things new, and there will no longer be thorns on rose bushes or poison ivy or uh, cats or anything you know like that, or, or, or nuts, nuts and brownies and 
nuts and cookies and nuts and ice cream. I love nuts, but let's just, you know, come out from among them and be ye separate, the Bible says. So uh, let's keep them separate. So this is God's plan in a nutshell. But notice that circle in the center of the screen, God's plan for the universe. Along the way, God's doing a lot. It's not just overly simplistic. You know, a lot of people try to boil the Bible down into what they call the re the scarlet thread of redemption. It's all about personal, individual salvation. That's part of it. Absolutely, God has a plan for the salvation of individual men, uh, mankind. That's part of it. But that's not the sum total of God's plan. God also has a plan, as revealed in Scripture, for Israel. He also has a plan for the church, as we're going to see this morning. He has a plan for angels. He has a plan for demons. Remember, Jesus said the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels, right? So God has, a, has and this is not even exhaustive, there are lots of things that Scripture tells us about God's a plan. But ultimately, it's all about bringing himself glory. This is God's plan. He's glorifying himself in and through his plan of the ages. So Paul uh, talks about a lot about this dispensation uh, that we're presently in. In fact, he later in chapter 3 of Ephesians calls it the dispensation of the grace of God. As I mentioned, a lot of times you'll hear people call this the age of grace. It doesn't mean that grace didn't exist before now. It just means that now more than ever before, we see the matchless, amazing grace. It was predicted in the Old Testament, you know, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah the prophet talked about how he would be a bruise for our iniquities and, and so forth. We, we see Daniel talked about how the Messiah would be cut off in Daniel 9. Now we see obviously references to the uh, you know, ultimate Lamb of God. It's prefigured in Abraham and Isaac. Remember when Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain? And, and, and the Bible says, God will provide a lamb. God told Abraham, I will provide a lamb. That's a prefigurement of the ultimate lamb of God. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we now are looking back on that supreme event of human history. We have it as a historical event, thousands of eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Christ. And of course, we have God's own word on the matter in the written word of God. So when Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of this dispensation, this stewardship, this present economy of the grace of God, where the grace of God is emphasized, what does he mean when he says, for this reason? For what reason? Well, you've got to go back and look at the context. At the end of chapter 2, Paul says, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God, Jew and Gentile uh, together. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Remember, he's writing this in 60 AD, roughly three decades into the church age. And he says, in whom the whole building is being built together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We're going to come back to the role of the Spirit in the present age in just a moment. But this is the dispensation of the church age. In verse 9 of chapter 3, uh, Paul also uses this word dispensation. That word fellowship is actually oikonomia in most Greek manuscripts. The New King James here translates it fellowship. But Paul says, Paul says to make all see what is the fellowship, the dispensation of this mystery. In other words, the Spirit of God is now leading Paul to reveal what's going on now. We have the Old Testament. We can see how God interacted with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see God confronting the serpent after the fall of man. We see Noah. We see 
uh, the Tower of Babel. We see the call of Abraham and the unconditional promise to him. We see Isaac. We see Jacob. We see Moses, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. We see the prophets, the priests, the kings, the judges. We see all of God's plan through the Old Testament. What's going on now? Uh, this is just an amazing new time in uh, God's plan of the ages. And it is a mystery. Again, hang with me. I'm going to define what that word mystery is. But we see a hint of it here in this verse because he says this mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. In other words, a mystery is not something confusing. A mystery is something new, something that God has known all along, but he's just now choosing uh, to reveal. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, put it this way in, he in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. So something unique is happening today. The eternal Son of God, who manifested himself in the Old Testament through the angel of the Lord and other manifestations, has now come and put on human flesh, walked among us, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, took our sins upon his shoulders at the cross, paid the sin debt, rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and now offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. Back to Ephesians. Uh, Paul, makes, Paul mentions the mystery of the church six times in Ephesians, the word mystery. And here's another one of them. He says, how that by revelation he made known to me this mystery. Revelation, unveiling. In other words, the Holy Spirit carried Paul along and revealed new information to Paul that was previously undisclosed. Remember what we read a moment ago in chapter 1. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Remember, this was not an afterthought. This was not something God changed his mind or decided on a different plan. He's had this plan as part of his will all along. And he goes on to say in chapter 3, in other ages this mystery was not made known to the sons of of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. We'll come back to the rest of verses 5 and 6 in a moment. So what is a mystery? It's the Greek word mysterion. It uh, is used 27 times in the New Testament, and as I mentioned, six times in the book of Ephesians alone. Uh, the first definition, if you look it up in the standard Greek dictionary that you have to use in all of academia, called BDAG, it's, what it, it's an acronym, uh, is God's secret. And I love that definition. It's God's secret. God's known this all along, and he's now telling it to us. And he's not just whispering it in our ear. He's just bellowing it out through the written word of God. It's a previously unrevealed doctrine. It's a mystery. It's, it's, the idea here is it's unmanifested or private counsel from God. So what is that private counsel that God is now revealing for such a time as this? Go back to verses 5 and 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul tells us the body is, the church is his body, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Well, now that's unique, is it not? That's different. In the Old Testament times, under the law, Gentiles could be saved. They called them proselytes. They could come to faith just like Jews had to come to faith. Jews didn't automatically get into heaven just because they were Jewish or kept the sacrifices. The sacrifices didn't save anybody. Everybody had to come to personal faith. And the same thing was true for Gentiles. But they had to come through Israel. 
And after they got saved, then they had to participate with Israel in the sacrifices. That was God's rules of engagement, his rules of the day, his stewardship. That's how people interacted with God, through the priests and through the sacrifices and the festivals and all of those, those things of, of Judaism. Now that's different. Now the Jew, Gentiles don't have to become proselytes first. They simply believe the gospel and become part of the same body. That dividing wall Paul talks about in chapter 2 has been taken down. That was a literal wall in the temple. Uh, now it's gone. And Jew and Gentile are one. That's unique. That's what's unique about this present age. And again, uh, you know, he says, In him, in Christ, we also have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what we need to understand is that dispensationalism and an understanding of the dispensations is simply understanding God's plan, his, the counsel of his will, his purpose, as we showed a moment ago. So if you look at his plan of the ages in this uh, panoramic view of, uh, of, of history, you can see how he's working out his plan. Each one of these was a little bit different. Adam and Eve walked and talked with, garden, uh, with God in the garden. Uh, you know, God talked with Abraham and he received an unconditional uh, promise. God gave the law to Moses uh, and the children of Israel. Today we live in a different age. Now, we're one age away from the final age, the kingdom age, the consummation of all things, when Christ comes back to make all things new in the kingdom age. Uh, and there's going to be a transitional period between this present age and the kingdom age, uh, a subject about which I've written a great deal. In my latest three books, we talk all about the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period when God completes his promise to Daniel that was a 490-year plan. 483 of those years have already been completed, but there's seven more to come. And just as the first 483 of those years were fulfilled literally to the day, you can prove that, and I've shown that uh, previously, uh, the final seven years will likewise be fulfilled literally. And that's the, going to be the lead-up, the precursor to the return of Christ. Jesus talks about it in the Olivet Discourse when, he, when the disciples want to know what will be the sign of your coming. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what the sign of my coming is. You'll see this and this and this. He lists all these signs that correspond perfectly with Revelation chapter 6. He mentions Daniel by name, including the abomination of desolation. And he says, when you see that, you know it's getting really close. That's at the midpoint of that seven-year period. And then finally, when the seven years is up, Christ is going to split the eastern sky. He's going to come back in power and great glory. He's going to take the throne. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And what's he going to say to the sheep? Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the final age. That's the kingdom age. That's what we're all pointing towards. But along the way, God is doing different things. He has a purpose for Israel, and he has a purpose for for the church. And it all culminates in this coming kingdom. Why would Jesus say, come ye inherit the kingdom, if what he meant was, hey, I'm glad to be joining you in this kingdom that you've already established on earth, metaphorically, in your hearts, which is what so many people teach today, replacement theology. Jesus doesn't come back to join the kingdom. He comes back to inaugurate the kingdom, to establish the kingdom, to fulfill the kingdom promises. But right now, we're living in what the Bible calls the last days. Remember what we read in Hebrews a moment ago? God in these last days has spoken to us through His Son. And so we're living in the final age, which is why I get so excited about Bible prophecy, because I believe if we follow Jesus' admonition to watch the signs of the times in Matthew 16, that we can say with some degree of certainty that we are living in the last 
of the last days and in, in the lead up to Christ's return. So if we look at uh, back at Ephesians, Ephesians is a stunning book. It'd be a great book to to study and work our way through verse by verse. I can recommend some great commentaries on that if you want to do that. But one of the best was by a mentor of mine named Earl Rodmacher, who's with the Lord now, but uh, we did a lot together. Uh, he influenced a lot of my thinking in certain areas. He wrote the foreword to my first ever book about 20 years ago. Uh, but he has, a, I think, the best outline to this day that I've ever seen of the book of Ephesians. So I'm going to just quickly summarize the six chapters of Ephesians in six points. Just throw them on the screen. Uh, so in chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about the church as a body that can never die. These are six metaphors that Paul uses within Ephesians to describe this incredible dispensation of the church. In chapter 2, the church is a building that can never be destroyed. In chapter 3, the church has a boldness that can never be discouraged. In chapter 4, the church has a brotherhood, is a brotherhood that can never be disrupted. The unity in, in Christ it talks about. In chapter 5, he uses that beautiful metaphor of the bride. He says, we are the bride of Christ, that the church is a bride that can never be divorced. In chapter 6, he talks about spiritual warfare and describes the church as a battalion that can never be defeated. Principalities, the powers, and how we have the power of Christ in us. So there are several key principles about the church in the book of Ephesians that are unique that are very unique and great blessings for us today. I've already mentioned how we are in Christ. That's something unique to this present age, a unique intimacy that we have, unlike any uh, uh, previous dispensation. Obviously, God was accessible. God's always, uh, you know, an immanent with an A, God, uh, here among us. But there were different ways in which you could interact with Him. And today, we can march boldly into the throne room, come boldly before Him, as He says in Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, as the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4. We're also sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's unique for the present age. I was talking to someone about this this week who was wondering, well, when, are we, when do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, it's, it's abundantly clear from Scripture we receive Him the moment we trust in Christ. That did not happen in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell or seal Old Testament saints. We never find that mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, it's unique to this age. And Paul says in, in Ephesians 1 that having believed, we are then at that moment sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence within us. The uh, Holy Spirit didn't come into existence in the present age. The Holy Spirit is God. God eternally exists in three persons. The Holy Spirit has been around for all of eternity. Uh, but he takes on different roles in different dispensations. In the Old Testament, he would come upon people. He might anoint kings or prophets in certain ways. Uh, and they might lose that anointing at certain times. He would lead and guide and convict. But today, you and I, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the permanent sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise until that final day when we see Christ face to face. Now, obviously, the grace of God is a key emphasis in Ephesians. Again, the mystery, this previously undisclosed but now being revealed information that's revealed to Paul and the other apostles by the Holy Spirit. The whole fact that Gentiles are fellow heirs of the promises to Abraham today, just as, you know, God said they would. Remember, God's plan for Abraham, as we looked at last week, was eventually to bless the whole world through him. And this is a part of that plan. Um, the gospel is uh, uh, referenced, as I mentioned, uh, how this plan of God was hidden in God through the ages and is now being revealed by the wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose of God. 
So dispensation just means a stewardship, an economy, a segment in God's plan that he is unfolding through the ages. Right now we have the totality of his plan, the complete scriptures. This is everything we need for life and godliness right, out, right here. We don't ever have to open up and add a 67th book. This is it. This is God's plan, and it comes from beginning to end. As I've said recently in different uh, conferences, you know, it's amazing how the Bible starts with the phrase, in the beginning, and yet people don't naturally then ask, well, what about the end? We're content to leave the end unknown, and unresolved, right? But it does start with in the beginning, and it goes full circle, as we talked about a moment ago, to a plan of Christ coming back in Revelation 19, triumphant. So that's what a dispensation is. Now, dispensationalism is a theological term that has come to describe those who understand the Bible the way I just described it, who see the plain outgrowth of God's plan uh, through the ages. And uh, uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, who's gone on to be with the Lord, but uh, he was a great friend and mentor uh, of mine, and he wrote uh, the definitive book on the matter back in the 60s called Dispensationalism Today. It has since been revised multiple times, but it's now simply called Dispensationalism by Charles Ryrie. Highly recommended. It's a short paperback, but it explains everything in, in greater detail that I've talked about so far today. But in that book, he describes three core essentials of dispensational theology. In other words, this is what makes dispensationalism. In Latin, he calls it the sine qua non, sine qua non, that without which. So in other words, this is the core essence, these three things. What are they? Number one is a consistent literal interpretation. Notice I said consistent. See, everybody that loves the Lord Jesus, believes the Bible, uh, you know, is conservative in their theology, they value the Word of God, and they claim to practice, to, to interpret the Bible literally, because that's the way words are intended to be interpreted. But the key is not everybody is consistent in that. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. But what is literal interpretation? Well, literal interpretation simply means that the words and sentences of Scripture are understood in their normal meaning. The way words are intended to be understood, it's the way language works. It's not rocket science. Language is a means of communication. And so when I say something, you don't have to wonder, well, I wonder what he meant by that. Let's decode this secret language and let's try to determine the hidden, deeper meaning of, of this, right? If I said, uh, on our uh, drive out of town uh, today, we're going to stop and get lunch. Uh, you know what that means. You don't have to sit there and think, I wonder what he means. Maybe he means he's going to go home and mow the lawn. No. <laughs> and that's just as arbitrary as it can be, but that's what spiritualizing the text does. But words mean things. Words mean things in context. And so when we spiritualize the text, we take plain words like church, and we say, no, that really means Israel. And the church has replaced Israel. And so all these promises that were given explicitly to Israel, to both houses of Israel, to the holy city of Israel, I mean, it's clear, the boundaries, everything about it. And we say, well, what he really meant when he gave David that promise was the church. What he really meant when he said temple was spiritually in our hearts. What he really meant when he gave the boundaries of the land in Genesis 15 was this metaphorical, spiritualized, nebulous kingdom. No, 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 we don't get to do that. Words mean things. It's the only way it's even possible uh, to communicate. Um, what is literal interpretation? Well, obviously, no spiritualizing or allegorizing the text. That's what we mean by allegorizing. So the opposite of literal interpretation is allegorizing. 
Uh, obviously, in any language, we understand there are figures of speech. That's, does, that's, not, you know, that's no problem with that. We use figures of speech all the time. In fact, I just used one called hyperbole. I don't use figure of speech all the time, right? I sometimes use figures of speech, and so do you, and so does every language in the world, including the Bible and the Hebrew and Greek. In my uh, Bible study methods uh, course, I go through a bunch of common figures of speech, like simile and metaphor and litotes and merism, and there's all kinds of figures of speech that are common in every language. And it doesn't mean you don't understand the meaning of what's being said. If I said, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, what do I mean? You know what I mean. You don't have any trouble understanding. It means I'm really hungry, right? That's a figure of speech, right? It's an idiom, to be exact. So, you know, we can use figures of speech. And so a lot of times you'll hear people naively criticize dispensationists because they claim to be literal. But look, there's all these figures of speech. Well, of course. We, we, no, no argument here. That doesn't mean you can't take the passage literally when you use a figure of speech. Um, it, it understands the literary context. It understands, and even in our English Bibles, you can tell by the way it's laid out on the page, the difference between a historical narrative or a wisdom literature like Psalms or Proverbs. Uh, you know, if you just look at your Bible, uh, open up anywhere to, to Psalms. I don't know if you guys can see that on the screen, but you'll notice it's set apart in couplets. It's, the indention is different. Then you go to a, a narrative portion of Scripture, say like, uh, let's go to Old Testament, like Second Chronicles. It's just full justified in your English Bible, because it's just a narrative. It's just telling a story like a newspaper, right? So, and same thing with prophetic literature, or apocalyptic literature, or the epistles. The epistles are all unique, like Ephesians that we've been looking at. They begin with an uh, opening and a closing, and they tell a doctrinal theme all the way through it. Considers the grammar, or considers the hist historical context. Obviously, words mean something in their context. What did it mean in the Greco-Roman world? What did it mean in the Hebrew Old Testament? That kind of thing. So dispensationalism strives to practice consistent literal interpretation. And that's important uh, because dispensational theology takes the historical portions of the Bible literally, but also the prophetic portions of the Bible literally. In contrast, non-dispensationalists like replacement theologians and covenant theologians, they take the historical portions of the Bible literally because they have to. They've already happened, right? When Isaiah predicted that the virgin would have a child, and then, you know, 800 years later, Mary, a virgin, had a child, that's pretty easy to connect those dots. Or when Micah, the prophet, predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and then he's born in Bethlehem, uh, yeah, you got to take that literally. But for the unfulfilled portions of prophecy, the second coming promises, the promises about the kingdom and the temple and the throne and all of that, they allegorize it. Like Ezekiel 40 to 48, which in beautiful, majestic detail describes the millennial temple and all of its architectural uh, grandeur, they brush that aside as nine chapters of one big giant, you know, symbolism. Why do they do that? There's no justification for that. Why do they shift their hermeneutic in the middle of the Bible? If, the, if one part of prophecy is taken literally, why wouldn't the rest? Uh, Daniel's a perfect example. The first 483 years of Daniel's prophecy fulfilled literally, and yet so many replacement theologians say that final seven years, no, no, it, it's metaphorical, it happened in the first century, it's symbolic, it's not a literal seven-year period. They're not going to be a literal antichrist, a literal seal trumpet and bowl judgments, a literal uh, abomination of desolation, a literal two witnesses, a literal Armageddon, none of that's literal. So it's inconsistent. And to be fair, dispensationalists 
at times we're inconsistent too in our hermeneutic. I mean, we've been some of the biggest offenders of not being consistently literal. Um, but in fact, whenever you deviate from consistent literal interpretation, that's when your you know, conclusions get off base. And uh, so we want to strive for consistency in how we interpret Scripture. So in the time that I have left, I know there's a couple other things I want to show you just briefly at the end about what makes one a dispensationalist. But how did we get here? How did we get from 2,000 years before Abraham, God promising very specific things to Abraham, and now today most Christians spiritualize all that and say there's not going to be a future for Israel. There's not going to be a future kingdom. There's not going to be a future temple. How did we get from there to replacement theology? Well, let me just uh, try to trace this through and see if you can follow along. So again, it started in 2091 BC with the promise to Abraham that we looked at last week. That promise included three elements, land, physical geography with boundaries, seed, the fact that through Abraham, ultimately the whole world would be blessed, or, I mean, through Abraham, the, the king of the world would, would come. The ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus. And blessing that through Abraham, the whole world would be blessed. Uh, and then you come to, again, the uh, uh, Exodus. As Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt for 40 years, they were in the wilderness. And God, uh, through the pen of Moses, revealed the, the more details about the land covenant. That, yes, this land is going to be yours. You've got it. I'm promising it to you. It's unconditional. It's going to be yours. And then a, a thousand years before Christ, a thousand years after the promise to Abraham, God makes a promise to King David. And he says that someday you're going to have someone from your lineage who's going to sit on the throne literally and rule the world. How would David have understood that? Do you think David, when he heard those words, thought, oh, I think what the Lord really means is that Christ is going to reign in my heart someday and it's going to be this, you know, sort of nebulous, spiritualized kingdom. No, David lived in the ancient Near East. He knew exactly what a temple looked like and a throne looked like and a kingdom looked like. And indeed, his son Solomon reigned over a kingdom, as David did. And he had uh, the temple the built, the first temple built. So, of course, David took those promises literally. Then the prophet Jeremiah, after the exile, promises that someday a new covenant is going to be made to bring all of this into fulfillment, reiterating the spiritual blessing aspect of that promise to Abraham. You come to the birth announcement uh, of Gabriel to Mary. I don't have this on the screen. I should have put it on there. But in Luke chapter 1, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Mary a young Jewish girl, and Gabriel comes to her and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you have three things that were reiterated in 2 Samuel 7 to David, reiterated here by Gabriel to Mary. Throne, house or temple, and kingdom. How do you think Mary, who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, understood that? Do you think she thought, oh, I'm going to be carrying this Christ child who's going to metaphorically have this spiritualized, nebulous, intangible kingdom that's in our hearts? No, no. She thought brick, mortar, physical chair where someone would literally sit the same way kingdoms and thrones have been used and understood for centuries throughout 
uh, the ages throughout the ancient Near East the same way David understood it. So no hint, no hint. We're already in the first century. No hint yet that God has intended for us to take this spiritually and we just misunderstood it. Then the Messiah is born and you have Simeon's song. Remember that in Luke 2? He's talking about the literal reality of the coming kingdom. Jesus grows up. He begins his earthly ministry. He's baptized. John the Baptist announces what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you think that first century Greco-Roman audience, the Jews within that culture, understood that reference to the kingdom? Do you think all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a light bulb went off and they go, oh, I'm sure this is not going to be a real kingdom. It's going to be a fake kingdom in my heart. Of course not. They were rejoicing. They were thinking, wow, we, at long last, after 2,000 years of promises, we get to be the generation that experiences the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus begins his earthly ministry, uh, and uh, throughout his teaching, uh, throughout his ministry, he, he says, the same thing. He began the same way John the Baptist did. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here among you. Uh, and then he teaches on the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you want to get into the kingdom, then here's how to do it. Your righteousness has to be greater than the Pharisees and Sadducees. All about the kingdom. Chapter 8 of Matthew, he begins to say how people are going to come from the east and the west and sit down at the banqueting table in the kingdom. Those are Jesus' words. What did he mean? He meant it's plain as day what the words mean, that there's going to be a literal kingdom someday, and people are going to come and sit down together in that kingdom. Chapter 13, he begins the mysteries of the kingdom, that word mystery again, meaning something new, and he begins to explain new details about the timing and nature of the kingdom uh, that were previously unrevealed. Uh, and then, then he predicts his death, and he says that I'm going to come back again and establish the kingdom. Throughout his ministry, the disciples were absolutely obsessed with the kingdom. If, you know... You are far hard-pressed to find anything in the New Testament that indicates even the slightest hint of people thinking of the kingdom in a spiritualized form. The disciples wanted to know who's going to be greatest when we get there. What are we going to get in the kingdom? One of the disciples, two of the disciples' moms, uh, one of the moms who had two disciples, brothers, wanted to know, can her sons sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom? Think she understood it literally? Absolutely. Jesus told the 12 disciples, you're going to sit on 12 thrones with me. You think they understood that literally? Of course they did. Uh, Jesus repeatedly talks about how I'm going to go away. Matthew or Luke 19, it's not on the screen, but Luke 19, I'm going to go away and prepare a kingdom. When I come back, you're going to give an account and your position of service in the kingdom will be determined by how you uh, react. He rides into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, and that remnant cries, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, in fulfillment of Psalm 118. The wedding feast, Jesus is talking about not everyone's going to be able to get into the kingdom. you got to have the one thing that's necessary, faith. Um, he criticizes the first century Jewish leaders. Uh, in 22, I think it is, he says, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to a future nation of leaders that's worthy of it. But you missed it. You stumbled at the stumbling block. Uh, again and again, the Olivet Discourse. I mean, you can't get more clear than the Olivet Discourse. He describes in painstaking detail what it's going to be like when the Son of Man comes back in all of His glory. And what does He say in Matthew 25? When the Son of Man comes in all of His glory and all of His holy angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and will separate the sheep from the goats, separate the nations as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. As a shepherd 
That's a, meta, that's a figure of speech called a simile. He's not talking about literal sheep or literal goats. He's just saying in the same way that you see sheep over here and goats over here, I'm going to separate believers from unbelievers. And what is he going to say to the sheep? Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the what? Kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See how it all comes full circle? God's had this plan ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Well, he's had it in eternity. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that plan was set in motion. And it's going to culminate in a literal earthly kingdom uh, someday. Uh, at Jesus' ascension. Now, here would have been the perfect time. So he's, he's crucified, rose again the third day, appears for 40 days to thousands of eyewitnesses. Then he's on the Mount of Ascension. And the disciples are still obsessed with the kingdom. They go, are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Is it finally time? That would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to dispel the notion of a literal kingdom. But he didn't do it. In fact, he affirmed it. He said, no, not yet, but it's not for you to know when. Stay busy. I'm going up to my father's right hand. I'll come back someday in the same way that I went. And when I do, then I'll bring the keys to the kingdom and unlock the kingdom and we'll start. Uh, so Jesus once again affirms this. The disciples then turn around. They go back to Jerusalem. First order of business is to replace Judas. They draw lots. Matthias is chosen to be the 12th disciple. Why do you think they did that? I can't prove this, but it seems obvious to me based on their obsession with the kingdom that they knew that Jesus was coming back and they were going to reign on 12 thrones. So they didn't want that 12th throne to be empty. They took him literally, right, as they have uh, throughout. In book of Acts, throughout, you see all kinds of references to the literal kingdom. Uh, Paul is anticipating the, the future kingdom in Romans 9 through 11 when he says the deliverer is going to come out of Zion and then all of Israel will be delivered into their kingdom at long last. Book of Revelation at the end of the first century certainly predicts the return of Christ to establish his promised earthly kingdom. But how did we get here? Well, let's, let's take a look at church history. So 100 years after the church age, uh, all the early church fathers were still anticipating a literal earthly kingdom. In fact, at the pre-trib conference that I'm speaking at in December, uh, hosted by the pre-trib study group, uh, Lee Brainerd is going to be speaking. He's been doing an incredible job over the last two or three years uncovering ancient Latin documents and other languages as well that throughout 2,000 years of church history that show, previously unstudied books, by the way, that show that throughout church history, the church fathers have always expected a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church, once for, for, the, for Israel to establish the kingdom. So based on what we've just read, it's not surprising that the early church fathers in the first, second centuries, second century understood a literal return of Christ. So you can imagine what it must have been like then. You're talking to your child or your grandchild, and you're saying, hey, I walked and talked with this Jesus, the King of Kings. I, I sat under his teaching. I was there when they laid him in the tomb. I remember it. I was there when he rose from the dead. And I remember what he said, that he's coming back and he's going to establish a kingdom and he's going to sit on the throne. And I know it hasn't happened yet, grandson, granddaughter, uh, but it's going to happen. Then that grandfather goes on to be with the Lord, dies. Their kids grow up, their grandkids grow up. They're passing on the same message. This was before social media and you know texting and internet and even the printing press. It was all verbal. So you're telling each other, he's coming back, he's coming back. You have the written word of God that was being circulated, and you could point to his promises, but it was mostly verbal, and you're saying he's coming back. But now you get to this, you know, third century, fourth centuries, and hope begins to wane. 
Now you're two, three generations removed from those who walked and talked with Christ. And the conversation's a little different. A grandfather on his deathbed is going, well, my grandfather told me that Jesus said he's coming back, and he walked and talked with him. But you know, grandson, it's been so long. I don't know. I'm wondering if we missed something. Maybe we misunderstood. And that's when Origen, for the first time in church history, begins to popularize the notion of a spiritualized kingdom. And he says, well, we, we, he's not going to be liter a literal kingdom. It's going to be a spiritualized kingdom. Augustine then wrote one of the most influential works in early church history, a book called The City of God, in which he popularized this notion that there's not going to be a literal kingdom, that the church is the kingdom, the Roman church in particular is the kingdom, the pope is the king, and you guys better get in line. This is it. This is as good as it gets. And that's called the Dark Ages. And that's where we were for some, you know, 1,500, 1,400 years. But eventually after the Protestant Reformation and the uh, invention of the printing press, people began to read the Bible for themselves without being burned at the stake for the first time in centuries. And they began to read words like words are intended to be meant, to be read. Hey, he says he's coming back. I guess he's coming back. Yeah, it's been 2,000 years, but God's word is God's word. He's not a liar, and he's coming back. And so we saw a resurgence of teaching about the literal kingdom with men like Darby, Schofield, Chafer, Walver, Pentecost, Tim LaHaye, and others. Uh, every one of those is with the Lord now, which is why we need to raise up younger men. I used to put myself in that group, but I don't feel like I qualify anymore. <laughs> But we need to raise up more men to continue to teach the literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture. So what is <clears throat> dispensationalism? A consistent, literal interpretation. And I just showed you how we ended up drifting. And so many people fell under the sway of this allegorized teaching called replacement theology. Uh, it's, we teach a distinction between Israel and the church because of our literal interpretation. God has a purpose for Israel and he has a purpose for the church. And as I started out by saying, we believe in the doxological purpose of God in human history. In other words, ultimately, God's bringing himself glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's, it's about God. And God, in his sovereignty and wisdom, if he wanted to send everybody to hell for doing exactly what he told us not to do and warned us not to do, he would still be God and he'd still be just in doing so. But he took the extraordinary step of reaching down to save us from the muck and mire of sin that we got ourselves into by sending his eternal son to the earth to save us. And that same Jesus who saved us is going to rule and reign uh, from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem over all the earth someday. So I hope you've understood how essentially you're a dispensationalist, whether you like the term or not. A lot of misinformation, disinformation, bad information out there. But just know this, it's a biblical term. It means stewardship or economy. It should be self-evident to anyone who reads the Bible and knows human history that God is interacting with mankind differently as time goes on. And the final phase of that interaction is going to involve a literal kingdom on earth. So here's the takeaway. God has a plan for the church. God has a plan for Israel. And he's got a plan for each of us. And I hope as we await the Lord's return, that you're thinking in those terms of God's plan for your life. What is it that he wants you to do? You have one life to live. Uh, and as Jesus told the disciples in Luke 19, what is it? What are you going to do with that mina, that life of service? How can God use you? I mean, I, let's be honest. We all wish that the moment we got saved, we just went, boom, instantly to heaven. Leave this old world behind. Wouldn't that be great? And our life on, on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. I mean, 70, 80, 90 years, however long we live, 
It's just a speck. But that speck means something in God's plan. He's got a plan for you. What does he want you to do in the bigger picture of his plan? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for just this uh, quick survey of, of what your word has to say about how you're working out your plan of the ages. Thank you for the rich uh, truths that we read in the book of Ephesians. Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness, for our salvation. May the gospel that went forth today uh, find receptive hearts for those who may not know you, and may they be convicted of their sin and their need for a Savior and come to faith. For the rest of us, Lord, we pray that you'd strengthen our faith, help us to always be looking up, and yet always uh, living out your purpose and plan in our lives while we wait. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.